Morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you here uh, to the St. John Speaker Series. We have a, a very dear friend of mine joining this morning, Karen Travers. Uh, I, I was told that I need to do a little bit of background on her, so I'll go ahead and do that. But uh, just reading her bio is, is impressive enough. One of the things I certainly wanted to note was that I was disappointed that she has only traveled to 49 out of the 50 states. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that 50th is, is pretty sad. Uh, the, the things I will highlight is that she is a, a, a native of the Philadelphia suburb of Bluebell, uh, and then she went to Georgetown in 2000, making her a huge Philadelphia sports fan and a Georgetown Hoyas fan. Uh, and she is unabashedly rabid about all of them, which often put us into contention <laughs> as a Syracuse fan myself. Uh, let me tell you, wearing orange in the alumni section of a uh, Georgetown game does not go over well. Um, but to, to say the least, her, her resume is exceptionally uh, impressive. And I, and I do recommend you all just take a read through it to, to see what amazing things she's done. Um, and, and I will say that this will be a little fun for me, too, because in, in D.C., you know, everybody sort of is involved in something. And, and when you get to know somebody personally, you, you try and not talk about work when you're at home relaxing or, or watching something else. So I'll, I'll get to, to hear a lot of the things that, you know, our, our friends always want to ask Karen that we're just sort of like, listen, we're, we're going to let her have some off time at home on the weekends and, and try and you know, take her mind off of work. So, so this will certainly be fun for me too. And, and we're going to do it a, a little differently. You know, a lot of speaker series, I'll just, you know, would, would we'd introduce the speaker uh, and we'd go from there, but we've had a, a whole bunch of questions that came in uh, to Karen. So we're going to make it uh, a little bit more of a question and answer where I, I've taken sort of a, a number of the common questions uh, and made them into eight or nine questions. And, and I'll go back and forth with Karen, certainly letting Karen talk for 99.9% .9 of the time because <laughs> nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Um, so I'll, we'll go ahead and start with, uh, with an easy one that came in and, and certainly a fun one. Karen, um, what is the rule, if any, about yelling out questions at the end of a briefing and do they ever really get addressed? What, what's your favorite? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question because I think if people uh, think back to just four or five years ago, it was not common to uh, shout questions when it was President Obama, when it was President Bush uh, or previous presidents. And people did it, it happened. They didn't always answer those questions. You know, you'd get the stone faced look in the Oval Office or the, you know, I can't hear you as they're walking to the helicopter. And then everything changed under President Trump. I mean, everything, so many things, but this in particular was one of them because uh, the former president, <laughs> no surprise, loved to talk to the media. You know, yes, there was a lot of bashing of the media and the tweets about the media, but he also under understood the power of the media and how much uh, he enjoyed sparring with the media. So that changed a lot over those years. And, you know, you would go into uh, an Oval Office event or, you know, outside Rose Garden, anywhere where the president was, and you'd have to have a long list of questions because sometimes it could be one question he might take. Sometimes it could be 10 questions. I mean, there was one time I was in the Oval Office. We were in there for 45 minutes and I got five questions to the former president because he just was on a roll and he liked engaging. Um, 
So that was a big change for the Trump administration. One thing we really like about President Biden is that he's kept up that tradition. And I think most people were expecting it, the pendulum to swing back to the old days and that he would do the, you know, I'll take questions when it's question time. But as he said the other day, it was a Wednesday, we were in a small group setting with President Biden and uh, first question was from NBC. The second question was from me. And there was a third question shouted and he kind of joked because he had walked away and came back and he says, you're going to get me in trouble. I shouldn't be answering these questions, but I can't resist them. And we were all like, yep, <laughs> we knew that. Uh, and that's been a nice, at least for us, we, we appreciate that there is still that uh, engagement. That does not mean the staff loves it. Um, you know, I, I think they would prefer that he did it in more of a formal setting because you can prepare for that and they can and brief him and have some bullet points and things ready to go. But Joe Biden, somebody that's been around Washington for decades. He talks to reporters in the hallways of the Senate for 36 years. You know, it's going to be, I think, uh, difficult for him to not engage with reporters in the way that he enjoys and the way he's used to. Um, I also just realized, Carl, I started jumping in on that because you said, let's jump right in on this. And I didn't thank you <laughs> for doing this. I didn't thank everybody for joining us today on a Sunday. I know you have many, many things you could be doing. So I do appreciate it. And thank you all so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to do this. Um, you know, Carl said I would talk 99% of the time. We'll you know, hopefully you have some good long questions for me too, Carl. But I think anybody, if you know any reporters in Washington, if there's one thing we all like to do is talk about our jobs because it's exciting. Uh, we want to make sure we don't do it too much because it does bore people in Washington because everybody's, you know, connected to the industry of politics in some way. But um, we, we have uh, interesting stories and, and I'm excited to share them. So I appreciate you guys having me today. Thank awesome. you. Very much so. And, and I also forgot to mention, we're, we're so glad that you are feeling better from the last time and thank you to, to join us this thank second. you very much and i apologize for that last oh, minute cancellation and uh it's a no good problem. reason thank you for science and vaccines so no, i'm glad no i'm problem. feeling better <laughs> um great so uh and uh a little bit uh you know back, back to you uh mm -hmm. you you've been in the white house for or in and around the white house mm -hmm. for almost 21 years now uh, growing up, was there a time, you know, in, in your formative years when you became that being a reporter, more specifically White House correspondent is what you wanted to do that you'd sort of honed in on that? Mm -hmm. No, you know, actually, I, I there came up in a Facebook memory recently, you know, like a little book you have as a kid, um, of, you know, my favorite color, my favorite sport, and it was uh, my favorite person on TV. And I wrote Barbara Walters, because I just loved watching 2020 as a child. And I grew up in Philadelphia, as Carl mentioned, and that's a big ABC town. Uh, the ABC station is dominant there. So I only grew up watching ABC programs. Peter Jennings, watching Good Morning America. Um, but I never thought I was going to go into journalism. In fact, I wanted to go into politics. And I came to Georgetown in order to uh, major in American government and economics and hopefully get a job working in politics, campaigning policy. Um, I worked on Capitol Hill when I was in college for uh, two and a half years. So five semesters and two full-time summers for the same member of Congress. Um, I was a paid staffer, even though I was in college, I was working for the press secretary. And that's what I thought I was going to do after college, uh, graduating in 2000 from Georgetown in an election year, I was gonna move to the district where the Congressman worked and work on the campaign. And I thought, you know, 
I'm going to give journalism a shot. I was uh, the editor of the Georgetown newspaper, the Hoya, which I enjoyed, but I didn't think of it as like a career path. Um, but I really loved ABC. I loved ABC's This Week. I loved uh, watching Sam Donaldson and Cokie Roberts and George Stephanopoulos, who had made that transition from politics into journalism. And I thought, well, maybe if I dabbled in an internship just to see if I like that, that could be something I could do after doing politics. And within a week, six days, something like that, of working uh, at This Week with Sam and Koki as an intern, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And, and I told the congressman, I'm making the shift. I'm going to go work in journalism. And I'm still friendly with him now. And he'll give me grief about you know making that switch out of politics to the media. Uh, but I just knew that this is the best place for me, that I wanted to be asking the questions instead of writing the responses to the questions and writing the speeches. And just that every day, every hour was something new. And to graduate in an election year is incredible because there was so much going on. And I was very fortunate uh, to get hired by ABC right after I graduated from college. And I can't believe it, 21 years later, I'm still there. I haven't worked anywhere else. So I started as an intern uh, for Sam and Koki, and now I hear I am today. But as Carl said, it's been mostly politics during that time. I was at um, Nightline working for Ted Koppel for about four years as a researcher for him, um, and then covered the 2004 campaign, uh, covering the Bush reelection campaign which is where I got to meet my dear friend, Anne Compton, who is, I know, um, one of your beloved parishioners and my mentor and very, very good friend. And I had the privilege of getting to travel with her that year. Uh, and after Bush won re-election, I moved into the White House as a producer. And that's kind of been the path since. And as everybody knows how politics works in DC, everything is cycles. So you do that campaign, you go to the White House, then you do the next cycle, and then you do a different job or come back to the White House. Everything is in these four-year increments. But I've been so fortunate that every election cycle, I've been at all the big events for ABC uh, and have been able to make my way back into the White House several times now after uh, changes of administration. Yeah, and you prompted my next question, which is a question <laughs> from my brother in Bahrain, so I oh, can't skip over it. Good Sunday um, evening, I think, there. <laughs> it was going to be who, who is one of your role models, oh. but if it is indeed Anne Compton. Do you have any funny or memorable stories from working with her? Because a, a lot of parishioners do certainly know her. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up with her kids in Sunday school, and, and she was always, <laughs> uh, always in and around the church. So we'd, we'd love to hear any outside stories you have. I mean, you just couldn't have learned how to cover Washington and cover politics and the White House, everything uh, from anybody better than Ann Compton. I mean, I, I was so fortunate to sit next to her. And when I say next to her, I, I think when people think of, you know, you watch the West Wing, you watch movies about the White House, you know, all the hallway walks that they do. And it's this big space and cubicles. It's not like that. If we were sitting in our White House booth right now and the booth is the Ann Compton booth, we have a little plaque up on the wall for her. If we were sitting here, Ann would be right here. Like we could touch elbows, <laughs> which is <laughs> how tight quarters we worked in all those years. Uh, but, you know, traveling the world with Ann, I learned how to ask questions. I learned how to not take no for an answer when you were trying to ask questions and also how to cover uh, administrations. I, I think with um, uh, grace and, you know, that understanding that they're having a job to do and their job does not necessarily mesh with what our job is to do and understanding the perspective they're coming from, but also knowing that we are there to ask questions on behalf of the American people. It's not just about me. It's not about our colleagues. It's not what we necessarily want to know. We have to channel what we think our listeners, our readers, and our viewers want to know. And that's a very 
I think humbling lesson that you have to learn early on that it's it's not about you um, and to go in there and ask the important things that your family and friends who live somewhere else outside of the beltway are most uh, caring about at that moment. So yeah, Anne and I traveled everywhere, which was really fantastic. The first time I was at the White House with her, she gave me the tour and pointed out the door to the Oval Office and said, you know, and just don't go down there and knock, just stay on this side of that hallway. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, so uh, I'm gonna switch it a little bit with, uh, you know, the, the timelines that we're working with right here. Mm -hmm. Again, you started in 2000, again, which is hard because your 28th birthday was on Friday. So, you know, being there. Oh, yes. Really I was a very elementary um, school intern at ABC News. It's incredible. Since, <laughs> since 2000, um, the way media is disseminated to all of us is very different. I mean, mm -hmm. the internet was essentially just starting out in 2000. Uh, and here we are in 2001, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, 2021, gosh. Um, you know, which one of those platforms would you say has has enabled the most dramatic shift in, mm -hmm. in the dissemination of news? Yeah, Twitter, absolutely. I mean, thinking back to covering the White House before Twitter, it, it's like incomprehensible, um, not just because of how President Trump used Twitter. I mean, just the speed of which you had to get stories out. You know, when I covered the 04 campaign, that was kind of the beginning of blogs. So you'd be out on the road, you'd file something, you'd email it back, somebody would edit it, and eventually it would get posted on a blog. And that could take hours. Then the 2008 cycle, it was like, that had to be up in five minutes. If for the candidates were saying something, you know, you needed to beat the other people. The video had to be up, the audio had to be out, the, the tech story within minutes. And then Twitter came around and then it became seconds, not minutes. And, you know, I think there was such a race always, there still is, you know, you want to break something first, you want to get it out there. But then the also the, the pressure and competitiveness of Twitter also kind of forces everybody, I think, unfortunately, to be in an echo chamber sometimes where you're at an event, you're covering an event, and you're just seeing like, well, how is everybody else covering this sometimes? And who else has heard that differently? So trying to force yourself to just step back from that uh, in the middle of the 2010 decade to just say like, all right, that can sometimes not be a great tool for covering campaigns when you're out there on the road. Just talk to voters, listen to the candidates, watch the exchanges. Let's stay away from Twitter for a little bit. And then President Trump came around and you couldn't avoid Twitter. I mean, it was the first thing I looked at in the morning. It was the last thing I would look at at night chances are in those handful of hours I was sleeping, the president would tweet something during that time because he kept even later and earlier hours than most uh, crazy political reporters. And it was it's just the way he used that completely changed how we cover politics, how we cover the White House. You know, you would see a tweet from the former president and ask his staff what that meant or what is he going to announce that in further? Is he going to add details to that? And so many times they wouldn't know because the tweet would come before the meeting about the policy that he tweeted about, or, you know, it was a, a whim tweet where he just says, I'm going to do this. And you pick up the phone, call, start calling sources and say, well, is there going to be a briefing on this? Is there going to be a fact sheet on this? And there wasn't because they were scrambling to fill in the pieces afterwards. So it, it Twitter for us as an industry, even before the president had kind of upended how we did our business with the speed of which we were trying to get information out there. And sometimes people then make mistakes because you're rushing to get stuff 
out on Twitter. But then the president, when he came along, how he used Twitter uh, just it forced everybody online. And that's such a difference now on May 16th of how we're using Twitter from January 9th or what day did he get off Twitter? Some point early in January of just what a massive change that has been. Uh, you know, I think we all catch ourselves you know, looking at Twitter and what do you do? And then you're realizing, oh, there isn't going to be anything. There's anything from the former president and there isn't really anything from President Biden either. So we can put it down a little bit. And I hope that that's been refreshing in some ways because it's, it, I think it, it helps us step back a little bit and get out of the noise that is social media because it's noisy. And I don't think it's always helpful. Sure. Uh, and, and a little bit more on that. And, and now mm -hmm. that you're, my understanding is teaching a class or two at Georgetown or at least being I was, yeah. There. Mm -hmm. So, um, to your students, would you, you know, tell them that what you've seen over the past 15, 20 years is net positive, net negative, you know, still don't mm -hmm. know? And what, uh, you know, where do you see this type of dissemination going? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's all sort of happened so fast. Do you think there's going to be a, a, a happy medium or mm -hmm. it's just going to keep getting faster, faster, faster? I think it will keep getting faster, faster, but I think it will go in different directions. And I say that because one thing I've learned from uh, working with students at Georgetown is that they're not on Twitter. Like there's a generational shift where reporters of a certain age, people of a certain age, policymakers and, and candidates and everybody else in Washington, that's where we think everybody is all day, but maybe it's only us. <laughs> like maybe we're all just talking to each other. And the students, I would find that they weren't engaging on Twitter. They were doing it on other platforms. They really like Instagram. They really like TikTok. They're still using Snapchat. Things that I'm not as fluent in because that's just not how we've done our business. Like we use a lot of Twitter. Um, so I think that's interesting because it also has to help us think about how to reach our audience. You know, if we're so quick to like, I've got to get this on Twitter because I just got this great scoop and I want it out there. Well, if it's just reporters and other people in our universe and maybe diehard political people paying attention to it, you know, okay, great. How else can we get that out there? How can we make sure we're serving our audience in the best way? In terms of a net positive or negative, one thing I do like, I feel like when I do events like this, <laughs> there was one recently, like we kind of always end up, you know, wow, we've just been like trashing social media. Like I want to say Twitter is good sometimes. I really like that you can engage with an audience in a way that we couldn't 10 years ago. I ask a question of the president on Wednesday. I tweet it and I'm getting instant feedback from people who have thoughts on it. And sometimes it's smart. Sometimes it makes me think about the question a different way. Uh, before a briefing or before an event, I will have people reaching out to me, strangers, or sometimes really smart policy people who say, you know, this is something you guys should be considering. And I don't hear this coming up in the White House briefing, but this is really important in our universe or our local community. And that makes you think, and, and you couldn't do that that 15 years ago. Yeah, there was like a, you know, a listener line for the audience or they could send an email. But that was a bit of a distance from getting from that person to the journalist in the room. Now it's right at your fingertips, which I appreciate. Sometimes I don't love the tweets I get. <laughs> They're not always nice. But if you kind of filter that out, and, and for a lot of people, I will say, I'm very lucky I don't get the brunt of it. There's a lot of people who really have a rough time um, and, and have a lot, there's a lot of harassment and really terrible things on social media. But I do think some of it though can be good because it's broken down those walls that was like, I'm the big journalist asking the question at the White House and you're out there. Well, now we're all kind of together in a similar space. Absolutely. And um, 
So sticking on that topic, um, you also do a whole lot of, of daily radio and, and local mm -hmm. TV news that, you know, goes across the country. Um, you know, what examples of you might have mm -hmm. of, you know, being outside of that echo chamber where, mm -hmm. you know, in DC, we're talking about $2.3 trillion, but mm -hmm. you know, $2.3 trillion is amorphous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in doing these local uh, spots, you know, what, what do you see uh, that they are focusing on more mm -hmm. so than, than what we might be in, inside the Acela Corridor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, just to explain what that is, you know, starting at 7 a.m. till about 10 a.m., I am talking live to anchors on ABC radio stations all across the country. This is what my dear friend Ann Compton did, and I got to hear her doing it for so many years and, you know, hear how she uh, did it with anchors and, and handled the curveballs that you might get and the really tough questions. And it's such an enjoyable part of my job. I love it. It's for several hours to hear what people are interested in in Cincinnati and in Kansas City and San Francisco and a whole range of audiences from red states and blue states. And the questions that they ask, you know, it might not be something that we're thinking about in Washington. And especially with what we're talking about right now, like you said, $2.3 trillion for infrastructure is a lot of money. The folks out there are doing this on such a smaller level. So that's a big number. And we talk about the back and forth debate and what the negotiations are and how's it going to be paid for. And those are very important stories. We have to cover them. But the way it's being heard out in local communities, and I'll say this is a lot because of how the Biden administration is messaging this, is how is it going to help Cincinnati? If this bill passes, the bridge between Cincinnati and Kentucky, which is desperately in need of repairs, could get repaired. The overpass outside Kansas City, that's you know a dangerous curve, but they can't do it funding for it for state budget reasons. You know, that could get fixed, or a port in some state in the southeast could get fixed. So they're really focused on how does this impact our community? And I'm really struck by that because when you work for a national network, we cover things from the national level. But I think we do have to remember that there's such an importance to these dollars. That's for infrastructure. Going back to the COVID bill, $1.9 trillion for COVID relief is real money for local restaurants, uh, for schools and for hospitals. And to try and remember to frame our questions, you know, and, and frame how we're covering things on multiple levels, the national level, but also what this means for actual real Americans is important. I think another thing, just to bring it back to the Trump administration, it was also very striking where something would break. We called it like breaking news o'clock and it was like six or seven or eight or nine or maybe five hours of breaking news o'clock when the times would break a story, then the post would break a story and we would match it. And then somebody else would get something else. And it was just never ending. And we'd be scrambling for hours. I'd go to sleep for a couple hours. I'd wake up fully expecting 15 questions from 15 anchors across the country about that thing. And it turned out it didn't cut through yet. And not because it wasn't an important story, but it might not have as much impact on the local level. And that we saw that a lot with the Trump stories because a lot of it was Russia related. A lot of it was the investigations or the tweet from the night before. And some of those things just didn't matter out there uh, it, from my perspective of what I was hearing questions from, from stations. And I always thought that was interesting. And I tried to provide that perspective to our newsroom to say like, let's just make sure that we're covering this the right way. Russia, the investigation was very complicated. It was very dense. I got confused. We had charts and 
you know, pictures of people with identifiers, you know, like Homeland style, like on a board. And if we had to do that, imagine just kind of the informed but casual news consumer. It's just a lot to follow. So it was a, it's a nice reminder of how to prioritize how we're uh, covering things and what we're asking about. And, and we've sort of helicoptered around one of the big topics here, but, but let's go ahead and, and touch on it since you've mentioned it a couple times. Um, how would you describe the, the Trump administration, specifically their relationship mm -hmm. to the press uh, was different or in comparison to, to previous uh, administrations and, and mm -hmm. traditional norms, be it um, Republican or Democratic administrations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing to start with is that the president was his own communications director. He was his own press secretary. He was the chief strategist. He was the everything. You had people who had those jobs, who were hired to do those jobs, who were getting paid to do those jobs. Uh, but the president often just did it himself. So that changed how we dealt with press staff, how we dealt with sources, because you could talk to somebody and they could say, you know, here's the game plan, here's what we're gonna do. And then he might tweet the complete opposite. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you just told me that. And it's like, well, that was actually what the plan was at noon, but then the tweet at one o'clock changed it because the president changed his mind. And so it was very hard to always have a grasp on what was coming or, what could actually be counted on as the truth uh, because the president changed things. He, he threw out the game plan. I mean, there was one time where he quite literally threw out a script, he, or a speech, he was reading it. And he's like, this is boring and tossed it off the stage. And we're like, imagine how many times he's done that behind the scenes too, of just something he didn't like, a, you know, a communications proposal, a policy idea, and just said, no, we're gonna do it my way. So it was a challenge then because the normal way prior to that of covering things was, you know, okay, President Obama is gonna announce this on Wednesday. We're gonna get a background briefing on Tuesday. We'll do some interviews with relevant people Tuesday night. We'll do a story Wednesday morning to tee it up. And then there comes the event. And it was organized and orderly. And it was like that when I covered the Bush administration uh, as well, there was a plan. And that plan never really played out in the Trump administration. We're back to having plans like that. Um, you know, I think one thing people in Washington and, and especially outside of Washington ask me now is like, wow, it must be so quiet. It must be so boring to come to the White House now. And I'm like, no, it is not quiet. It is not boring. It's just different because we're not staring at our phones waiting for the tweet storm that's gonna upend dinner and make me have to jump back on my computer and start calling people. But it's the seven o'clock background briefing uh, followed up by another one at 9 a.m. on a different topic. And it's you know so many things because they have a very ambitious agenda. They have a lot of things they wanna get done and they really feel they've got to do it now while they're still kind of riding high on some polls and feel that the American people like the proposals they're putting out there. So they are just running, running, running. And that's kept us running. And that's a good thing. Policy is a good thing. Like we like covering dense background briefings. We like doing deep research on electric vehicles ahead of this event that the president will do in Detroit on Tuesday. Uh, but it's a very different pace. Uh, so the, the relationship that this staff has with the press is more traditional in the way that they're, how they give information, how they don't leak, how when you call them at 6am to ask them, like, can you give me a hint of what he's going to talk about at noon? You're like, well, you'll find out. There'll be a briefing at 11. 
uh, and, and you could get information in a different way from the previous administration because there was just a lot of people that were willing to talk. It didn't always mean that you were getting the best information because that person might not have been with the president five minutes before that. So, you know, and, and I think just broadly, because people we're not being called the enemy of the people anymore. The, the president is not tweeting about fake news, uh, but that doesn't mean covering a change of administration, a change of party is you know all just easy and wonderful. There's tense exchanges in the briefing room. There are contentious moments on email, and that's just how it's going to be because we have a job to do, and the White House has a job to do, and that is to get their message out and to protect their boss in some ways. And and um. We'll go to a, a quick segue here. Um, and going on that a little bit, there's a perception, whether accurate or not, um, that Democratic administrations are more friendly with the press. You know, ha has that been your experience throughout, uh, you know, four different administrations of, of both denominations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I, I think maybe people think that out there uh, because you know, stereotypes about the media or perceptions about how the, you know, the makeup of the media, but I have not felt that way. I mean, I covered, my first White House was covering George W. Bush, his second term, and then covering the Obama administration right after that. And that was a really big change because, you know, you had a lot of people in the Bush administration who were just veterans of Washington. People who had worked for uh, the president's father, people who were in that orbit before, just, you know, old Washington hands who knew how the place worked and it was much more traditional. Um, and covering then the Obama administration, they won an incredible campaign. They came in after winning an incredible primary and, and you know, vanquishing the, the uh, Hillary Clinton juggernaut and then cruising to that victory then against John McCain. And, and so much about like the change and everything the country was experiencing at that point. So imagine coming in like that, if you're kind of the new guys in Washington, it was a much younger administration. It was a younger press office. And these are people who did not work for uh, you know, a previous administration. It was a lot of people who were Obama people and they came in just riding high. And that made it challenging then to deal with people like that uh, for the people who had covered the previous administrations you know, before that. So I don't think there is this, you know, it's easier, um, or more difficult. I think we have to approach it always in the same way that you know we have our job to do. Uh, and I, I, the thing with this administration is that there are a lot of people who are from the Obama years. You know, they know their way around the White House. They know their way around Washington, and that makes it more challenging sometimes because you know <laughs> kind of can't like. Like, well, just tell me this. And like, we know how this works. <laughs> we are not going to, you know, tell you something before the president announces it. They're very loyal to the president. He's got a team of people who've been around him for a very, very long time. And, you know, how many stories have you read since January 20th from the Post or the Times that have, you know, this story is based on interviews with 20 administration officials or outside advisors uh, with this deep insight into what's happening in the West Wing? I think I've read one one story like that. They're just, it's not happening um, because this White House does not leak. You can try, we're trying very hard, <laughs> but they're not sharing kind of the inner gossip and palace intrigue and in what's happening and who's the last one in the room like we saw so much during the Trump administration. So it's clamped down in a way that, you know, if you want to get gossip and call somebody and find out what the mood was like in the Trump White House, you could get four people on the phone in a second who would tell you like, oh, guess what it was like. It's just not happening right now. So it's a bigger challenge. 
Um, well, speaking of gossip, I'll, I'll go to a little quick <laughs> one while, we're, while we got you on it. <clears throat> What's been your take on presidential church visits? Bush, Bush went uh-huh. pretty frequently. Uh, mm-hmm. Obama was sometimes, Trump sometimes, uh, and, and Biden's relatively regular as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's your take on it and sort of how does, how does the media look at it and deal with it if they deal with mm-hmm. it at all? Yeah, you know, it's interesting the difference of how each approached going to church too. I mean, George W. Bush obviously came to St. John's um, frequently, um, and the reporters were allowed in with him. You know, you'd have pool duty, as they call it, and it was your Sunday, and you'd get up, go down to the White House early, and either make the walkover, however he'd get over to church. Um, and, And it was always interesting to hear what the service focused on, what the homily was focused on, what the readings were like. I mean, we maybe tried to read too many tea leaves into things, but you would then report back to the press and say, here's what the president heard today. And that was just an interesting storyline and and something for us to think about. Uh, We didn't see former President Trump go to church all that often. He would do it on um, Christmas, uh, sometimes Easter down in Florida, but uh, the reporters didn't, don't believe went in with him. And the uh, Joe Biden, is a regular churchgoer. In fact, he just an hour ago uh, went to his Catholic church up in Wilmington, Delaware, where he goes when he's at home uh, in Delaware on the weekends. He goes over to Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Georgetown. But the difference is we don't go inside. I did church duty a couple of weeks ago and we just stand outside on 35th Street and you wait for him to come out and shout some questions and he doesn't want to answer them and that's fine. But they really do feel that this is a private 45 minutes to an hour that the president has and that he deserves that. And it's not uh, for show. It's not about, you know, what the uh, homily is about and how that might connect to politics and, and what he's thinking about that. This is a very private moment for him and they want to keep it like that. Um, so, you know, I think it's been every weekend that he's been in DC or in Wilmington, he has gone to a, one of the church services. I think it'll be interesting to see if he mixes it up a little bit in DC, President Biden. Does he go to any other churches? Um, I'm kind of joking. I went to Georgetown. He's going to Trinity, which is pretty much on campus. Like, you know, there's student houses that are all around it. Um, I live like a stone's throw from the entrance of the church. It's virtual school right now. There's only seniors in the off-campus housing, but nobody is there. You can't go into the campus buildings. It's going to be really interesting to see what that looks like in September when there's 6,000 students back and the presidential motorcade shuts, literally shuts two full blocks of 36th Street down, 35th Street, uh, for the president to pop into church. And then he got bagels that one time, too, a block away. So then it was like two full blocks of everything shut down. But, you know, this is his private time and they're uh, very keen and, and they want to protect that for him this hour once a week. In, in our last few minutes, we'll, we'll switch to uh, some, some fun closeout stories. So for, for the four administrations that you've been covering, could you for each sort of mention a, a fun trip or your, your mm. favorite trip from each um, and then maybe mm. a, a little uh, either personal story from that trip or just that you remembered happened during the administration uh, that, that mm-hmm. was a, a fun and enjoyable thing? You know, you, you walked out of the Oval Office one day, and then you were in a car to FedEx field going to watch the Eagles play or or something. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) I got to get that on the agenda for this fall. (laughs) Uh, And especially given that uh, the Bidens are Philadelphia sports fans. So we're kind of hoping that we'll win a championship in the next four years and have the team invited because the Eagles, 
fortunately their Super Bowl visit was canceled by the president in a tweet, no surprise. <laughs> that was not a great alert to come up on my phone. Um, but I guess if you wanna kind of just go through, um, we traveled with uh, former President Bush to Mongolia, which is, you know, we always talk about, you know, places that we'd love to go to, places that we'd go back to uh, that you did on a work trip. Cause some of these trips are so fast. You know, like you might not even be staying in a hotel for a full night because of the time difference and when you have to work in the morning, noon and night, and then hop on the next plane. But we went to Mongolia I'm never going to get to Mongolia ever again. And we actually had time to be able to walk around the city for a while, which is really cool and something that I will never forget and won't ever get back to. Um, I also had the incredible privilege of doing former President Obama's first two secret trips to Afghanistan. Um, there's a rotation uh, of, you know, the, each day a different network takes coverage day. And it just happened that both trips were ABC's day. So I was the producer on both of the trips. Uh, Martha Raddatz and I went on the first one and Jake Tapper and I went on the second one. And you're part of this group of just like 13 reporters. Um, the whole trip is secret. You can tell your spouse because you're going to be gone for about 36 to 40 hours and for safety, uh, but you can't tell anybody else. I mean, my colleagues didn't know, my bureau chief would know, but that would be pretty much a very small, small group. Um, and, you know, you do those trips where you're flying in, the shades are down, the lights are off. It's all very secret. Uh, security is incredibly high, but it was amazing to be on those two trips, uh, especially his first one. And we took a helicopter ride over Kabul so the president could meet with the uh, Afghan president, hold a series of meetings, and you're just scrambling. You know, you're in the, on the flight for like 18 hours. You get there, three hours on the ground, get back on the plane, and you know, 15 hours back, 16 hours back. Uh, but that was an amazing privilege, and I was very fortunate to get those two trips um, with President Trump. It, that first trip was incredible. We did six, seven countries in like six days or something crazy like that. Uh, and the first stop was Saudi Arabia, which was really unconventional to make your first trip overseas uh, to Saudi Arabia. Usually you pick like a, you know, Canada, Mexico, or even like the UK as President Biden is going to do. Uh, so that was something very different. And on that trip, it was uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, Vatican, NATO summit in Belgium. We kind of were bouncing all around um, and it was just a whirlwind. Uh, but that was, yeah, so that was, <laughs> we, were, we enjoyed that trip a lot too. Uh, and then for President Biden, uh, the first trip is coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, he's going to the UK and Belgium and presumably a third stop to meet with Russian President Putin, which he has said he very much wants to do. They haven't announced that yet, but we're about three weeks out from that trip. So details to come, but that's a, it's a big one. You know, not just his first trip overseas, but it's the first world leader summit since COVID. It's a really big deal to get all of them together uh, vaccinated, but to have that many people come together in person, we know the president is kind of over all these Zooms and would like to sit down with everybody. So this should be a good trip too. Awesome. And and we're right around uh, 1040. So I'll, I'll have a one more here. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any inside jokes among White House correspondents that you care <laughs> to share that are church event appropriate? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, hmm. Inside jokes. You know, I I don't think anything would be very funny to anybody. It's, you know, 
we all joke about the same things that uh, the, the photographers are um, a group of, you know, the still photographers who've all been doing this over several administrations. You've got a lot of veteran reporters and um, the photojournalists from the TV networks who've also been doing this for many, many administrations. And the funny thing is, as we were actually talking about this the other day, we'd say the same jokes all the time. Like every time you're waiting to walk into the Oval Office and we're waiting in the hallway out there and everybody's kind of amped up, you've got your questions ready to go and you know, make sure your recordings are all going and everybody's set. And inevitably, one of the photographers will just go, it's canceled. And then the newbie in the pool will go, oh, it's canceled, it's canceled. Like, no, they've been saying this joke since like the Clinton administration. If not before that, it's not canceled. It, it, so it's just like a little like kind of fraternity, you know, silly uh, teasing of the newbies when they come around. But once you've done it twice. <laughs> you should learn and know that it's not canceled. We're still gonna be waiting, we'll still go in. Uh, but you know, it's a wonderful group of people. I've been so lucky that I started off covering uh, Bush's campaign in 2004 and I was a kid, I'd like to think, you know. I was pretty young, uh, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids myself then. And you grow up with these people, uh, the, the photographers who took me under their wing back then when it was my first time being the pool producer and had no idea where to go or those two trips to Afghanistan where like I'm lugging all this gear up the steps and they all help you out it's just like a very collegial collaborate uh, environment and I think that's probably weird for people to think because it's super competitive you know we want to beat NBC we want to beat CNN we want to beat the post but if my recording fails I know that my colleagues at CNN the post the NBC and you know the New York Times they'll help you out too because you know we also have this sense of a collective uh, mission you know, the press, and everybody will work together, even if we're all trying to scoop each other and get a leg up on the other guy. Awesome. Th thanks for doing this, Karen. R really appreciate Thank you. it. Um, it. It's been a, a whole lot of fun. Uh, I, I know it's been fun for everybody who's been watching on here. Uh, really glad we got you back here uh, this, this second you. time around. Um, and, and I'll leave with this. As much as we have uh, been able to say nice things about Philadelphia sports, Karen had a good <laughs> one uh, when the White House chief of staff was appointed. She noted that uh, he was an illustrious Georgetown alum. And I said, well, Syracuse alums know how to delegate. Uh, so that, that went over with a couple of Right. Months. You hire, you know, hire the Georgetown people to do all the work. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, yeah, well, it was actually funny. We, the president had a, he had an event and he was late and Georgetown was playing in the Big East tournament. And it was a game that was going down to the wire. And I kind of joked that the president was not going to have the event until the end of this game. And Ron Klain, the chief of staff, Georgetown alum, like tweeted and he was like, he literally tweeted and he was like, he's not watching, but his chief of staff is. And we were like, you've got an event that's five minutes late. Let's wrap this basketball game up and get moving. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thanks again, Karen. Um, Thank you. Th I thanks appreciate again, everybody for, for joining in and certainly glad uh, we got you back this second time and that you're feeling better. Thank you. I really, this was really lovely. And I know you guys, uh, everybody who's participating, you know, you're Washington people, you know, a lot of this stuff. So hopefully there was something that was new and insightful there. Um, but I really, this was a, a very lovely privilege to be invited. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Have, have a great day.